Good morning. Good morning. Hey, you guys are awake. If you're a guest with us, my name's Rob. I'm one of the ministers here at New Hope. Glad that you're here. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open it or turn it on and get to John chapter 3. Uh, that's the primary text we're going to be camping out in this morning, John chapter 3. We're in a series called The Created You. It's based off of our uh, VBS curriculum. We have a vacation Bible school coming up, and our students, their theme is Gadgets and Gizmos. And they're looking at different things that God has created us for. Um, and we're trying to follow along in that same pattern. We just didn't want to call it gadgets and gizmos. And so we called it the created you, uh, which is not very creative, but we did it. Um, so we're going to be in John 3 today, and uh, we'll continue on in this series. If you're a guest with us, I want to uh, welcome you, ask you if you, don't, if you get a chance. You can fill out that white card in the seat in front of you if you're a guest. Uh, we'd love to connect with you. You can drop that at the Welcome Center after the service. Um, and if you are a guest, we invite you to stop at the uh, Welcome Center. I always say, like, we're glad that you're here with us to the guests, but let me just pause for a second. Like, if you're not a guest, we're still glad you're here. All right? Thank you for being here, you faithful uh, that are here every week. Uh, everybody can stop at the Welcome Center, learn how to get connected, sign up for different events. Uh, we'd love for you to do that. In addition to that, there's an extra table out in the lobby. And that's a table our elders are sitting at all morning long, and they're ready to answer questions, um, get you connected to our REACH initiative. If you've been here, you're like, hey, I wasn't around when that got started, but we'd love to be a part of it. We want to invite you to stop by that table, learn how you can become a part of the REACH initiative. Uh, it's a partial generosity initiative, but the other parts are leadership development and outreach. And so uh, you can learn more about that. If you're somebody who's already involved in the REACH initiative, I encourage you to stop by that table and get an update. Where are we at? How are things going with it? Uh, what's the latest update? And they'd be glad to answer those questions for you. That table will be there this week and next week as well. Hey, we're going to be in John chapter 3. Before we get started, let's go ahead and pray. Father, I'm grateful for this morning. I pray that as we gather together, you would speak to us from your word. God, we are here with expectation. We are here with gratitude, wanting to hear from the living God that when we leave this place, we might grab onto a truth that you want us to remember that we can walk out of here with, we can be changed forever. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, uh, I don't know what it's like in your home, but every once in a while I get stuck in the indecisive trap. Anybody else? Uh, there are times when I just don't make a decision for whatever reason, and my wife doesn't want to make the decision, and we end up either missing the movie time, not watching a movie, not going to the restaurant, and other times we make the decisions, but we get stuck on that. And uh, that gets me thinking about things in my life that when I was presented with something that required me to make a decision. Like, I, I couldn't just ignore it. You ever had these moments? I, rem I remember when I was younger and I was uh, dating somebody. And uh, all the people around me were like, dude, this has to end. And uh, I didn't want to be confronted with that truth. And so I continued to date this person. And then uh, finally, it just became evident, this cannot go on. And so I, I called it off. Painful. Needed, it was truth, required a response. I remember when I was picking a college, like what school do I want to go to? I had to weigh all of these different options and what, what's the best choice for me? And when I came to that conclusion, it was like, all right, now I have to make a decision. I got to write an essay, I got to apply, I got to get accepted. Uh, but it requires me to respond uh, to this truth in front of me. I remember uh, in college meeting my wife and I'd made this commitment that I wasn't going to say I love you until my wedding day, right? Bless my heart, I know. Uh, <laughs> And then I'm confronted with the truth that I love this girl. Uh, she was great. I just loved being around her, and I felt like I needed to tell her, I love you. And so I was driving home from a date with her, and 
began to struggle through saying it out loud. <laughs> like, um, I, you're pretty. Uh, <laughs> and she let me struggle. And to this day, will tell me, she knew right away what I was trying to do. I'm like, you let me struggle? She's like, yes, I did. I let you struggle. But I had to tell her because it was true. It was a truth that required a response. I had to say something. I, with parenting, having to figure out with how each of my kids are wired. You just, don't just make a blanket thing. This is, this is how it is in this house. And, but instead, figure out how each of them are wired and, and, and come up with that truth and respond appropriately to the truth of who my kid is wired to be. I, with our finances, we do it. We do it all, all the time. We do it with God's word. One of the top priorities in this church is that we would just get back to what the Bible teaches. We would study it and we would submit to it. The Bible's our ultimate authority. And so there are times when we uh, encounter scripture and we think to ourselves, I don't know how to respond to this. or I don't know that I want to respond to this. or I want to bring all these other things into it. But when you trace the line back like a, a good detective would to the source, to the original uh, truth claim, and you get to the truth and you're like, this requires that I respond appropriately to it. This is what we're going to learn between an interaction that takes place with, a guy, with Jesus and a guy named Nicodemus. In John chapter 3, they encounter one another. They have a conversation that we're going to just kind of listen in on and learn some things from this morning. John's an interesting character. There's four books at the beginning of your New Testament. They're called Gospels. Gospel means good news. They are, they are histories, if you will, of the good news of Jesus. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Okay, Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written before John. They're what we call the synoptic gospels. They were written 30 to 40 years after the resurrection of Jesus. John reads a little bit different. When you open up the gospel of John, it just reads a little bit different. John was a young man when he met Jesus, probably a teenager. He began to journey with Jesus and, and walk with Jesus, and his life was forever transformed. As a matter of fact, in the gospel of John, you'll read a couple different times how John describes himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, which I love because it's bold. I love that. It's a very bold statement. Uh, hey, here's all these other guys, and then there's the one that Jesus loved, and he's right here. And I love that because it's bold, but I love it because that truth kind of bleeds into our passage today. That we can walk away from today, and we can walk away with this realization that we too can be the disciples whom Jesus loves. And we too can be confident that we are disciples whom Jesus loves and cares for deeply. John was uh, the only disciple that wasn't martyred for his faith. He wasn't killed for faith in Jesus. He got to grow old, and in his old age, he had a lot of wisdom, and they exiled him to an island called Patmos. And while on this island, and Jesus gave him a vision, that's where we get the book of Revelation. Uh, John wrote that. And John, in his writings, um, has a lot of wisdom to offer us, and a lot of that comes from this interaction here right here in the beginning of his gospel in John chapter 3. And so this encounter begins, we'll start in verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now Nicodemus was a group, uh, belonged to a couple different groups or bodies of uh, leadership. The first is the Pharisees. He'd worked hard to become a Pharisee. He was intelligent. Being a Pharisee meant he was probably a little bit older in age. Uh, they'd probably place him around in his 60s. Not only was he a Pharisee, he was a part of the uh, ruling body known as the Sanhedrin. So he served on this body of judges that they made decisions. And they had so much influence that they could change the religious culture of the day. They were the intelligent ones. They were the well-off ones. They were the successful ones. They were the secure ones. And Nicodemus is one of these guys. He serves in that capacity. He's a very well-known Pharisee in that land. 
And so this, verse 2 says, this man, this well-known Pharisee, this well-to-do guy, very intelligent, comes to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with them. Now, people speculate, and you can do the same, that why did Nicodemus come to Jesus at night? And many people might say that he was scared. He didn't want anyone else to know he was talking to Jesus because of his other religious standing, and so he snuck out and had a secret meeting with Jesus. I struggle with that one because there's no other place in the Gospels where the Pharisees ever hesitate to engage, have conversation with, or confront Jesus. I don't know that there was a fear to be around him. I wonder instead if maybe there's a prayer meeting, because there were prayer meetings in the evenings for the Pharisees, and on his way, and he knows that Jesus has some available moments, and He's curious because he's been hearing all these things. That's an indicator into how he addresses Jesus. He calls him rabbi. It's a very endearing term. He recognizes that he's a teacher. And he says, hey, rabbi, I know that you've got to have some wisdom. Because everything that's going on around here, all these things that I'm hearing about you, if they're true, there's only one explanation, that you come from God. And so I, I want to know a little bit more about what I've been hearing about. And so he calls him this. There's nobody else. It's a really endearing term because you couldn't reach a higher level of religious standing than Nicodemus had reached. And even though he's at this standard, he displays a little bit of open-mindedness. I mean, here's a disciplined guy. He's pulled together. He's successful. He's moral. He's religious. He lives this great life, and yet he's open-minded, which is more than you can say for his contemporaries or for the peers that he had. These guys didn't want to be open-minded to sitting and talking with Jesus, and yet he was. He comes to him and he addresses him as rabbi. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Uh, Truly, truly, whenever you read that in John's writings, it's about 20 to 25 different times John will use this phrase, truly, truly, coming from Jesus. And it's Jesus, it's like a marker where Jesus says, okay, what I'm about to say next, it's, it's so important. Truly, truly, I say to you, pause, make sure you're paying attention. What I'm about to say, yes, you don't want to miss. You don't want to miss this. And so then Jesus says, you cannot be, if you're not born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, kingdom of heaven, for a guy like Nicodemus, is salvation language. Essentially what Jesus is saying to him, you cannot be born, if you're not born again, you cannot be saved. You cannot enter into the rest of God. You cannot enter into his kingdom. Kingdom language for a Jew in that day was salvation language. They longed for the kingdom of God and to be a part of the kingdom of God. They prided themselves on being God's people. And so when he said, you cannot enter God's kingdom unless you're born again, then here comes that loaded phrase, born again. I don't know about you, but uh, when I grew up, I was, did not grow up in a Christian home at all or a Christian environment at all. And I was, I would go to the, I was in a public high school and in high school, we had two groups of people that would uh, attach that phrase to their name. I'm a born-again Christian. You had the religious nuts, okay? And I say that endearingly. They were just crazy. Uh, they were overly emotional about everything. I mean, everything was this emotional experience. And you're just like, can we turn your brain on just for like three seconds? No, it's just emotional. And they longed for the next emotional experience. And they just, ah, uh, no one described No one used the word born again in a a positive way to describe somebody. On the other side, in my experience, you'd have the dogmatic person who's so devout and so uh, just devoted to being right that the first thing you wonder when you're around them is, did anyone ever teach you social or people skills at all? 
Did you learn anything about talking to humans? Because I'm right here in front of you. Stop reading the book to me. Let's just talk. And so when people would use those terms, I don't know what your experience has been like, but for me, when someone would say I was born again, it was, I'd recoil when I heard that. And I was, oh, I'm not quite so sure what to think about that. I'm skeptical of that. I'm, I'm not really okay with that phrase. And yet, this is where it originated. And here's what I would say. If it originated with Jesus, it's okay with me. When Jesus uses this phrase, it's going to stick out to Nicodemus. You have to be born again. Because Nicodemus accomplished so much with his religious behavior. I mean, he was so religious, religiously upright. He had accomplished so much. He had done so much. He, had, he, was, he was the epitome of success in his day. Everyone came to him. He had all the knowledge. He had all the influence. He was financially secure. He had this great uh, Christian, if you will, a religious rock star life. And Jesus comes to him and says, hey, you are not going to get into the kingdom based on what you've accomplished. You're not going to get into the kingdom based on what you do. You're not going to get into the kingdom based on how good you are. What role did you have to play in your first birth, Nicodemus? Were you born because of your own skillful planning and talent and hard work? My son and I, we love watching sports together. All my kids love watching sports. And so my kids stayed up last night to watch the Warriors and the Utah Jazz. I was pulling for Gordon Hayward. They were pulling for the Warriors. They won. Uh, That's okay. But we like sitting and watching sports. And one of the things that drives me nuts about watching sports, it always will, is the uh, self-satisfaction some of the athletes get in their abilities. Like they're so focused on themselves. Like, yeah, they beat their chest or pull their jersey aside, which why do we want to see that? I don't even know what that means. They're just, yeah, I'm awesome. I'm good. And it just, it makes me crazy because I'm like, you didn't, this was a gift for you. This is a, you didn't tap on the uterine wall and say, I want to be 6'9", 260 in athletic. Yeah, order up. You're good. Like it didn't happen that way. Yeah, but I worked really hard to get where I am. Well, you did, but look what you had to start with, a life that was a gift. It was a gift. And God gave you this gift, and it was not based on anything you'd done to earn it. You were given this gift, and so he turns to Nicodemus and says, not only that, if you had nothing to do with your first birth, to be reborn, it's beyond your control as well. It's beyond your control. Well, this would have stood out to Nicodemus because what Jesus is saying to him is, Nicodemus, I know what you've accomplished. I know how good you are. I know how well-known you are. I know how knowledgeable you are. But you're on the same playing field as the pimps and the prostitutes outside these walls. You've got a homeless person who's addicted to, to whatever, and they're not doing the right things with their life. They are in just as much need of God's grace and love as you are with all of your religious behavior. You're no better than them. This perplexed Nicodemus. He couldn't understand it because everything he'd been trained with was, it's all about how I behave, all about what I do and what I can accomplish. So he asked this question in verse 4. He says, how can a man be born when he's old? Nicodemus would have been in his 60s, and he's talking to, picture the tension here. He's in his 60s talking to Jesus, who's in his early 30s. So there's already that, like, you're a young man. What do you have to offer here? It says, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? This is one of those moments when I'm reading scripture, I'm like, I wish I could have seen it, not just read it. Like, I wish I could have seen, is he being condescending? Oh, sure, teacher. Like, yeah, be born again, climb back into the womb. Or is it like more like, man, I can't wrap my brain around this. I don't get it. You say this idea of being reborn and it's beyond my control. What, what does that mean? I, I can't climb into my mother's womb and, and be born again, can I? I can't be born a second time, right? 
I think that's probably more the approach he's taking. He's curious. You know why? Because if you read through John's gospel, you get to chapter 7, and after this encounter, Nicodemus stands up for Jesus. You get to chapter 19, Nicodemus participates in the burial of Jesus. Jesus changed this man, and I think he's curious. I'm not, everything I've taught, this isn't lining up, but I'm, I'm open. I want to hear what, what's going on here. Jesus answers him. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So again, if it's repeated, it's important. You need to know that when you read the Bible. If it's repeated, it's important. And so you have the idea of being born again, already here, born again, kingdom of God, and truly, truly. Jesus is trying to emphasize something. Truly, truly, I say to you, truly, truly, unless you are born of the water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you're born of the water and the Spirit, he's trying to let him know this new birth that needs to take place in your heart and in your life, it happens because of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. He's saying you can't do it. It doesn't matter how hard you work. It doesn't matter what you accomplish. It doesn't matter what kind of a past you've got. All that matters is that the Holy Spirit comes in and he does a work, a work that only God can perform. Only God can do the work of changing what sin cursed in your life. What sin did wrong in your life, only the Holy Spirit coming into your heart can change that. It requires submission and humility. Jesus says here that it's the Spirit that reverses the work of sin in your life. He's explaining to Nicodemus his need that it, despite your morally upright life, you are in need of the Holy Spirit coming into your heart and doing an, an incredible work. And the Spirit in the New Testament, when it does a work in your heart, it describes it as a resurrection. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says, when the Spirit comes in, it's like it's a resurrection. It's your, uh, your old life goes away and you are raised to a new life. You have this new life that takes place inside of you and all of that is because of the Holy Spirit. It's not because of anything that you've done. And Nicodemus would have thought of this immediately. He would have known because this was prophesied through the Old Testament. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27, Ezekiel said this, And God says, I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and and be careful to obey my rules. You want to live this new life, you need a new heart. That's what Ezekiel is saying. You can't get a new heart. You can't be reborn. You can't enter into salvation if the Holy Spirit doesn't do a work in your life. And so rebirth, being made new, forgiveness, restoration, it's brought about by the work of God. God does the work. God's the one who brings about the change. In addition to this, Jesus connects this rebirth to baptism when he says you must be born of the water and the Spirit. This idea of baptism immediately would have resonated with Nicodemus for a couple of reasons. One, he would have known about the work of John the Baptist in that region. John the Baptist had gained a big following, and if Nicodemus knew about Jesus entering into this conversation, have heard about all the things that you're doing, is what Nicodemus said, he would have had to have heard about all the things that John was doing before that. And John was teaching that the kingdom was coming and that you needed to repent. And so if you have to repent, he says, you you need to be baptized. And so he went down into the water and he would baptize people for repentance. And John had a huge following, was baptizing all kinds of people. 
But he would consistently convey this message. I'm just baptizing you in the water for your repentance, but there's coming someone who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In fact, in Mark 1.8, he says this, I baptize with water, but one is coming who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And so he says the, the baptism of Jesus is going to be a lot different than the baptism that I'm doing, is what John says, because the Holy Spirit will be involved in it. The Holy Spirit will enter in when Jesus does it. And not only that, uh, Nicodemus would have been familiar with baptism because baptism is not a new concept in your New Testament. I mean, baptism was around in the Old Testament. Anytime somebody wanted to come to worship, you had the proselyte baptism. Anytime someone wanted to enter the family of God, they would be submerged and washed and cleaned. Anytime the Jews came to worship at the temple, before they could enter into worship, they would step down into these large pools. They're still there in Jerusalem to this day. You can walk down into these things. They would walk down into these large pools and get their whole body, and they would wash all the impurities off of their body so that they were then clean enough to enter into worship. Now, the, the baptism Jesus is talking about is different than that. It's not a baptism to cleanse the body. It's a baptism to cleanse the soul. It's not something that you do to yourself. It's something that somebody else is doing for you. It's not something that uh, someone else uh, does for you and that they're doing the work, but they're assisting you and allowing God to do the work in your heart. It's something that you don't have to repeat numerous times. When you're ready to make that decision, you're ready to have God do that work in your life, you just make that decision once and then you rest in that truth. Now here's the thing. According to Jesus here talking to Nicodemus, just getting to what the Bible teaches, we all need to be born again. We're all on the same level here. Being born again is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's God that does the work. And that, play, that takes place when we humbly submit ourselves to being baptized. Now, if you're like me, you have questions that swirl around in your mind, and you wonder, well, okay, what do you mean when you say baptism? What are we talking about? The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4 said there's only one baptism. So there's one Lord, there's one baptism. Not multiple, but one baptism. What do you mean by that one baptism, Paul? What, what is one baptism? So we're going to ask a few questions and do a few answers when it comes to baptism. So you have a better understanding of what the Bible teaches. And I understand this can be difficult. I get it. I'm not here to fight. I'm not here to start debates. I'm here to say, here's what the Bible's teaching us. Here's what it means. So why do we baptize is the first question. The New Testament teaches that baptism is a part of, not the only part, but it is a part of your response to God's free gift of salvation. It's a part of the way in which you receive and accept that gift. In the book of Acts, Peter, on the day of Pentecost, the church is starting. Peter stands up in front of this group of thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people. They'd come for Pentecost. They thought he was drunk. He wasn't. He was just preaching. <laughs> there you go. That's a free one for you. He stands up and he's preaching. And he preaches this message all the way through the Old Testament. And it culminates in this, you, your sin is what put Jesus on the cross. Your sin that separated you from God and caused Jesus to have to die this death that you deserve to die. But he defeated that death for you. Verse 37 of Acts chapter 2 says that the people were cut to their heart. They were so cut to the heart that their response was, we believe you. We believe you. What do we do? How do we respond to this truth? This truth has been presented. What's our response, Peter? How do I respond to the truth that you've presented to me? And in verse 38, Peter says this, and Peter said to them, Repent, cry out, repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
For this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Everyone. This, he's referring later on in the book of Acts, this promise would be made available to the Gentiles. But I think he's pointing even further than that to saying even us today. This promise is for us. And with many words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received, those who responded to the truth that had been presented to them, received his word, they were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So they were baptized. And the Bible says in 1 Peter, I'll read you 1 Peter. I'm not putting this one on the screen. Sorry, I just changed it up. 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter continues to explain what baptism is. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. You skip down to verse 20. He's speaking of the people in Noah's day because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from your body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus. So what he's saying is it's not the water that's saving you. It's not the physical water that does the saving no, that's not, that, that's not it. If, if that's all that happens to you, then all you're doing is getting wet. He said it's the resurrection of Jesus in that moment that takes care of this. It's in that moment. It's what Jesus did in defeating death and the work of the Holy Spirit on your heart in that moment that changes everything. You might say, well, Rob, if that's true, then if baptism's something that I have to do, wouldn't it be considered a work? And the Bible says I'm saved by grace, not by works, so wouldn't baptism be a work? And I would say that's a very fair question, but think about this. I've never seen anyone baptize themselves. You're not, doing, you're not the one doing baptism. You're allowing it to be done to you. You completely submit yourself into the arms of somebody else. They lower you down into the water. You are not in control whatsoever. This is just you allowing them to put you under. You have no idea how long they're going to keep you there and bring you up, which some of you are like, sign me up, I'll do baptisms, right? Down under the water. And then you're raised up to a new life. All submitting, humbly submitting yourselves into the care of somebody else while they do this. And it's God who does the work, not you. Here, friends, let me, let me just be bold. And I, again, I'm just wanting to address what would have been going through my mind if I were here today. If we reduce baptism to simply being an act of obedience, in that very moment, we're just, this is a response to something God's already done. I'm just obeying God in baptism. If all it is is obedience, then baptism is something you're doing for God. And every single occurrence in the New Testament, baptism is always about what God is doing for you, not what you're doing for him. Every time baptism is spoken of in the New Testament, the spotlight is on God. He's the hero. He's the one who we should bring our attention and focus to. He's the one who should receive the glory. But what, Rob, what if I prayed a prayer and I asked Jesus into my heart and I haven't been baptized? Let me say this. I'm tired of fighting and debate and trying to hurt people. I'm not trying to hurt anybody with this. I'm, I'm not going to try to ex excuse and explain away your experience. I'm not. I'm not going to try to tell you this or that. I'm simply saying, what does the Bible teach? What, what's in the book, guys? What, what's it teach? That's all I want to know. What does the Bible teach? And friends, there is nowhere in your Bible where the phrase, speak Jesus into your heart, appears. Nowhere in the Bible does it ever say, invite Christ into your life. It never says it. The Bible says when you're presented with this truth, your appropriate response is to repent, to cry out, I'm a sinner in need of your grace. 
and to submit yourself humbly in the waters of baptism where Peter says you will be forgiven of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Next question. We know why, but how do we baptize? In the Greek language, or in your, actually your English translation of the Bible, the word that will appear in your Bible is baptize. That's not a translation. That's actually what's called a transliteration. Right When the translators got to this word, instead of translating it what it really meant, they just transliterated it. They just copied it literally from the Greek. And so the Greek word is baptizo. Baptizo. And so they just wrote baptize. Baptizo means to immerse or submerge. That's literally what it means. It was used all around the world during that day. It was to, when they would speak of ships that would get sunk. When that ship got sunk, it was submerged. It was baptized. It speaks of dishes. When you're cleaning dishes, there's writings where people say, when you're doing the dishes, you baptize them in the water. Guys, you know what that means? You push them all the way under and you clean them and scrub them. And so you, you baptize those dishes. And so in an effort to be um, as close to what the Bible teaches as possible, we practice baptism the same way every single time the word is mentioned in your New Testament. It's immerse. And so you could translate John the Baptist, John the Immerser. When Jesus said, go into all, go and make disciples of all nations, immersing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. See, you could replace that word with immerse each and every time you read it in your New Testament. It wasn't until over a hundred years after the church began that a concession was made. When you cannot find a body of water to immerse somebody, they would say you can pour water on their head three times. You would take water and you would pour it three times, once in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, then later on, they said, this pouring's getting pretty messy. What if we just sprinkled? And so they started saying, we'll just sprinkle three times, once in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But when you get back to what was practiced in the early church and what the Bible teaches, it's immersion. Now, you might come from a background that says, well, I was sprinkled. And I would say, hey, I'm not here to tell you that that wasn't important. I'm not here to tell you that that wasn't a meaningful part of your story. I'm really not. But when we look at how we baptize, we go back to what the Bible teaches and we say, see, even people that have been sprinkled, if you've never been immersed, if you've never been immersed, we encourage you to be immersed. And I'll get more to that here in just a moment. Who do we baptize? Those old enough to understand their sinfulness and accept God's free gift of salvation. Over and over again in the Bible, you're going to read this thing called believer's baptism. And it refers to someone being old enough to make a decision for Jesus. This is my decision. I make this decision for myself. But again, you might come from a faith background where they baptized infants. And this comes from what the Bible talks about, this theological stance called original sin. And the Bible teaches that at the moment of you were conceived, you inherited the sin of Adam. And so uh, many people believe that once you were born, you were born with that sin. And so the logical thing to do would be to baptize that infant as soon as possible to secure their salvation. Again, maybe you've experienced this in your walk. The only thing, the issue with this view is that even though the Bible does affirm original sin, it does say it in the sense that everyone inherits a sinful nature at their birth. The Bible also teaches that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross takes care of the inherited guilt and leaves us accountable for our personal sin alone. It's Romans chapter 5. In Romans 5. But, so when a young person's born, we, must have, we all have to deal with the sinful nature, but you're responsible before God for your own sin, not the sin of the people that came before you. It's your own sin. And so a young person, until they're old enough to recognize their own sin, is innocent. That's why we believe that when a child is born, 
and they leave this world far sooner than they should have. We believe that they are not separated from God because of their sin, but they are united with Jesus because of his grace that covers them. The New Testament gives no indication that the early church baptized anybody who wasn't old enough to make the decision for themselves. And so maybe you come from a a tradition where you were baptized as an infant or you were sprinkled. I would encourage you, if if you're coming presented with this truth, the response it requires from you is for you to make that decision on your own. And here's the thing, that can be a scary thing because you're like, I don't want to hurt anybody. I don't want to offend anybody. But I would say this, there's a reason they had you baptized because they wanted you to walk with Jesus. And so maybe you could view it this way. Instead of going against it, what if you're fulfilling it? Because their deepest desire is that you would walk with the Lord and now you're saying, I want to walk with the Lord. I'm ready to make this decision myself. And so you make that decision on your own. Now, Last question, when should I get baptized? That's a little bit of an easier answer. If you believe in Jesus, but you've not been immersed into Christ, the answer to that question is right now. Right now. We have everything you could ever need back there. We've got deodorant, unused deodorant. We've got t-shirts and shorts and everything. The water's warm. Everything that you could possibly need for you to make that decision. When you're presented with that truth, you believe that truth. The appropriate response is for you to follow through with that. And the Bible says you repent and you're baptized into Jesus. And you are, when you're baptized into Christ, you're forgiven of your sins and you're given the gift of the Holy Spirit who we're going to talk about next week. What role does the Holy Spirit play in our lives? We're going to talk about that next week. You're given that Holy Spirit who does a work in your life and regenerates your heart from the, a heart that was cursed by sin. But friends, here's the thing. I, I don't want you to only hear this from me. This has made a big impact on my life. I got to baptize my oldest child just a couple years ago. It was the highlight of my life. Next to that, I got to baptize my mom one year and two days before she died. This is a meaningful thing. It's an incredible. It's had an impact on my life because of the truth of the gospel message, the good news of Jesus. But I don't want you to just hear it from me. I want to invite my friend, Michelle Stafford, to make her way to the stage. And I'm going to have her share her story of God's grace and how he worked in her life. Good morning. Rob said, my name is Michelle. And first of all, thank you for um, being willing to listen to my story because it's really more than my story, it's God's story. Um, Before I get started, there's a verse I want to kind of set in your hearts to keep in mind because this is one that has resonated with me for a very long time. And it's Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. From the outside, it would, appear, it would appear that I have always been a Christian. My family attended a little country church. We went every Sunday. We sat in our pew. We followed along with the song leader. We took communion once a month, all of us, no exceptions. The minister prayed, I guess. It was something we just did. Faith was not demonstrated in my home life. We never prayed for meals or even on special occasions. I don't think God was ever mentioned. When I was about 10, there was some kind of leadership change at the church, and we were seeking a full-time minister, and there were a lot of different men that came and spoke and delivered a sermon, maybe even some served for a short time. 
But one of these men discovered that none of us kids, about 20 of us in total, and I was the second to the youngest of that group, none of us had been baptized. It was a term that I had never heard before, and I wasn't prepped for it with any teaching. I wasn't asked if I wanted it or if I understood what it meant. Palm Sunday, 1976, all of us kids were taken to a church that had a baptistry, and one by one, we were led through the line, and we were all dunked in the water. The minister didn't even get out. It was just one after the other. There's a great picture of all of us with wet hair standing together. I couldn't find that, thankfully. Um, so I got wet. Did my not life noticeably change? No, I didn't know it was supposed to. Fast forward a few years, and I saw for the very first time a group of people my own age who were on fire with their faith. Teenagers openly talking about God and being excited about it. They were on a mission trip serving at our church, and I spent time for a whole week that summer working alongside of them with hammers and paintbrushes. But most importantly, my heart was being worked on. And I began to feel like I was missing something, but I had no idea what it was. Fast forward a few more years, and I went away to college. I rarely, if ever, thought about my faith. And for the first few, after the first few weeks, I didn't think about it, probably at all. All of a sudden, getting up and deciding to go to church on Sunday morning was my decision to make. Nothing from my past traveled with me. I wasn't a horribly rebellious or terrible college kid, but I certainly did do my share of things that I should not have done. Fast forward a few more years, John and I got married. He grew up in a Catholic church, and he was just as empty as I was. It wasn't until we had our first child, Elise, that we knew we needed to figure this out. We got involved in a church in Danville, Indiana, where a young assistant minister began to pour into us. He was on fire for Jesus, and he met us where we were at. Eventually, we moved to Whitestown, and we found new hope. Friendships developed very quickly, especially through our Sunday school class, and we became, in a, became involved in a small group, and our lives really began to change. This group fervently prayed for John especially, for his heart to be softened for baptism. In the spring of 2000, John was baptized into Christ. While I was overjoyed for him, my heart was filled with doubt, anxiety, and even fear. I was actually jealous of the peace that I could see in him, because I didn't have that. I sought counsel regarding my questions about my own baptism. Was it even real? I forced these anxieties away because I became convinced that I had been obedient and I was fine. But I felt like a cheater, a liar. I had not made a choice, and in my head and in my heart, it was an act that was done to me. Later on that same year, our son Curtis was born. He had a serious heart defect, and he underwent his first major heart surgery when he was only 11 days old. So tiny and so undeserving of having to go through what he did. He went through two more heart surgeries. He went through two more heart surgeries over the next two years. Never in my life have I felt so helpless or so willingly wanting to take someone's place. 
If only I could have done that. Curtis died just before his third birthday. And only God can know that, that, that level of pain. Nine years later, I was still struggling with this lack of assurance of my own salvation. The desire in my heart to finally make a decision to belong and to follow Jesus became almost overwhelming for me. I couldn't make it through prayers without sobbing and asking for clarity. Finally, I realized that this turmoil was the clarity that I needed, and God was giving me an answer, and I knew exactly how to get rid of it once and for all. Our kids, Elise and Ben, and my husband John all went with me to our backyard pool. And my kids, who were baptized believers at that point, took my confession of faith, and John baptized me. That blessed peace that I had been seeking, that complete rest and reassurance that I'd been missing, was finally mine. Not once, not even one single time since then has that fear ever taken hold in my heart. I know I'm sealed. I made my own choice to follow him, always. Along with that peace, I now have an indescribable gratitude for Jesus. For what he did for me so that I could be set free, I will spend the rest of my earthly life thanking him for that. And then one day, God will call me home, and I'll be with him, and I will be reunited with all those who have gone to heaven before me. Thanks. It's a powerful testimony. It is. Presented with truth that requires a response. For some of us, I don't know your background, I don't know where you come from, but I'm thinking for some of us in this room today, if you've never met Jesus in the waters of baptism, today might be your day. And Jesus would say to you, you cannot enter my kingdom unless you're reborn. And I've made that perfectly available to you by defeating death and being resurrected. Friends, if that's you today, I want to encourage you to make that decision. We've got everything you need taken care of. Others of us, we need to take this information and allow it to secure our hearts in the confidence of what Jesus has done for us. As we leave this place knowing, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for what you did for me. I love the way that Michelle said it. I will spend the rest of my earthly life thanking him for what he did for me. Will you do the same? Let's pray.